On today's episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Kyle Dieleman about the Sabbath in the Dutch Reformed tradition. So we cover all sorts of topics, like what is the Sabbath and what were the general views the Dutch held? Were they different or distinct from others on the continent or in English Puritan contexts? How did the Dutch conceive of the Sabbath? Was it strictly 24 hours? Was it sun up to sun down? How did they interpret all sorts of biblical texts, such as Romans 14.5? Did their theological opinions change over time? What were their main theological motivations for Sunday observance? How might their theological rationale play out in today's context? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking, we've tried to encourage that and cultivate sort of almost an intellectual culture online of sorts of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Because we think serious thinking doesn't just mean uh, knowing all of the information that is out there and knowing it really well, it also means having a virtuous disposition about that information. Uh, we think the moral formation of the individual goes hand in hand with uh, being a, an intellectual agent of sorts. So we try to put that together there, explain what we're trying to do with all the podcasts that we do, all the online content we do. We have a range of guests, a range of authors that do stuff for us all across the map. And what we're trying to really cultivate is just a posture of humility and kindness, but also a very critical posture of understanding arguments and ideas and being able to decipher them for ourselves. So oftentimes in our podcast, we don't tell you what to think. We're trying to teach you a little bit of how to think and understand sort of like what's going on there with, with the moves different people are making, why they're doing it and all that. So lots of fun on all these podcast episodes. I'm excited to introduce you all to Dr. Kyle Dealman. And I'm thrilled to do this partly because I love doing theology, Dutch Reformed theology. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, but also because I think probably the most common question that we get related to podcast stuff is related to the Sabbath, uh, particularly just reform thinking on what does it look like for the Sabbath. I, I think most people I talk to when they're talking about like reform confessions today, wh what would might you subscribe to Westminster or or the Second London Confession of Faith or something like that? The, the exception that almost everybody invariably has is. I take exception on the Sabbath. So being able to talk to Kyle, who's done a ton of research on uh, the, particularly the Dutch view of, of the Sabbath and how that looks is going to be a real treat. So I'm excited to do this. For those of you who want to follow up, he's got his book out there. I'll link to it in the show notes so you can go take a look at it. Um, I think it's published with one of the expensive academic publishers. So what I remind everybody is, if you can't afford to buy it for yourself, tell your library to buy a copy because they have funds set aside for these sorts of academic works. And then you can have it as a resource as well as others. So before we get into the topic, which is going to be a lot of fun, Kyle, tell me a little bit about yourself. What do you do? And then maybe what was it that really piqued your interest in saying, I want to study this period of history on this particular topic of the Sabbath? Yeah, thanks. I'm glad to be here and talk about Sabbath issues. I love it. Uh, so I have for the past six years served as uh, a professor at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois. Um, 
I'm currently transitioning to Dort University in Sioux Center, Iowa, where I'll be serving as an associate professor of theology there. Uh, and so uh, I've served as a history professor, professor will be serving as a theology professor. And so uh, my academic career has sort of straddled those two disciplines, uh, thinking about theology, uh, but then also thinking about church history and how that theology gets uh, lived out. And that uh, sort of balance was present already in my doctoral work, which I did at the University of Iowa um, with Reformation scholar Ray Menser. Uh, and there uh, I was interested most broadly in theology, systematic theology, but then how that uh, evidences itself, how that impacts how Christians are living uh, their, their lives within the church. And so uh, as I was thinking about that, uh, I was interested in the Protestant Reformation. I uh, was interested in the Netherlands, the Low Countries, uh, largely because of my sort of ethnic background, uh, my religious upbringing. Uh, I was raised in Dutch communities, Dutch American communities, uh, in Reformed tradition. Uh, so uh, thinking about what part of that uh, historic uh, culture would I like to investigate. Uh, and as I was thinking about that, it became pretty clear to me, as you've already sort of mentioned, that for a lot of people, the the clearest expression of their Christian faith is what happens on Sunday. Uh, and so became interested in how did people think about worship? How did they think about uh, what, what happens on Sunday and what should happen? Uh, and so that was the sort of genesis of the, the project and has sparked you know, research that I've been carrying out for the last half dozen years or so, or probably more, I guess. Excellent. Well, th this is going to be a lot of fun. So maybe before we start, we talk just basic level definition. When we're talking about the Sabbath, what are the particular views on offer for what it looks like on a Sunday? I'm probably most interested in the 16th, 17th century context, but if you want to like make application to some various examples of what it might look like today, that might help some people. Yeah, sure. So obviously the term Sabbath has deep connections with the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. Um, and it's rooted, of course, in the Ten Commandments. Uh, in the Reformed tradition, that gets numbered as the Fourth Commandment. Uh, if your listeners are of other traditions, they might know that as the Third Commandment. But uh, in, the, in the Reformed tradition, the Fourth Commandment, uh, the Sabbath Commandment, and of course that comes up in other places in the Old Testament, uh, Israel, uh, is supposed to keep Sabbath both in terms of a weekly Sabbath, but then that has implications for uh, other festivals and celebrations as well. Uh, but then the term continues to be used by Christians, uh, though it gets redefined, of course. Uh, and so in the New Testament, you have phrases like the Lord's Day. Um, and so in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, they do use Sabbath and Lord's Day uh, in terms like that, just straight, just Sunday. Uh, they use those terms somewhat interchangeably. So, sometimes they're using technical definitions about, uh, you know, linguistic, okay, what does sabbat mean, uh, and so forth. But for a lot of times they're just using those terms interchangeably. Um, and so part of the, the question uh, that they start to raise is what is the Christian relationship to the Old Testament Sabbath. And so one of the really fundamental questions uh, for them, and I think this has lots of contemporary applications, is, is that fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, is it ceremonial or is it moral? 
And so they draw on this theological distinction that's ancient, goes all the way back to guys like Tertullian, uh, to say there's different types of Old Testament laws, right? There's judicial laws about how Israel should regulate its uh, social life. Uh, but then there's ceremonial laws around sacrifice, around kosher, food laws, things like that. Uh, and then there's moral laws, the laws that are enduring, uh, that have some sort of moral basis. And of course, Christians are still obligated to follow moral laws, uh, but not necessarily judicial or ceremonial laws. And so the much of the debate centers around, is the fourth commandment ceremonial or moral? And if it's ceremonial, then... Uh, we're going to understand it differently and perhaps not be bound by it. Uh, but if it's moral, then we're going to have obligations. Right? Um, and so one of the terms that gets used a lot, both by scholars, but also by uh, people in the 16th, 17th centuries, is the term Sabbatarian. Uh, and sometimes this is a sort of self-claimed uh, term, uh, but other times it's a sort of accusation, sometimes a derogatory term. Uh, and Sabbatarian Again, the definitions vary a little bit, but typically someone who either identifies as a Sabbatarian or who gets labeled as a Sabbatarian has a pretty deep sense that the Christian Sabbath, the practice of Lord's Day, is rooted in the moral law of God, which means it's rooted in creation and thus is, is moral and enduring. Uh, and that as part of that, then, uh, it has to be observed on the first day of the week. And so there's disagreement amongst the Protestants uh, about whether or not that day has to be on Sunday uh, or if there's some freedom there. Uh, and so we could delve into some of those sort of debates. But the implications of this are pretty uh they're not just sort of theological distinctions because they matter. So if it has to be, if the Sabbath has to be on Sunday, uh, then of course you have issues of, well, what if I have to work on Sunday? Uh, or what, uh, what if I miss church on Sunday? Uh, can I go another day of the week? Or should my church, what if my church wants to offer a, a midweek uh, worship opportunity. Is that okay or is that not okay? Uh, and so that's where a lot of the sort of debates um, sort of end up, uh, both in the 16th, 17th centuries, but also in our contemporary discussions. Yeah. Okay. That, that's really helpful. So there's, there's two related questions that I want to ask at this point. It seems that oftentimes I hear two things when it comes to people who don't want to have a more strict for view of the Sabbath. They look and say, it's almost like a Calvin versus the Calvinist sort of thesis. Calvin had one view that's not like what we see in the, the British Empire, um, a, a strict Sabbatarianism. And then there's another, another comment that I hear often, look at the Belgic Confession and the Dutch tradition, and th this is outside my wheelhouse, so you tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there's a lot of popular narrative that says the Dutch have a, a more relaxed view of the Sabbath than does England and others. So just tell me, like, what is Calvin's view? Is that informing the Dutch view? Like, is there is it true that Calvin and the Dutch tradition are more lax than somebody like the London? Like, if I went to London and experienced the churches there? Yeah, uh, so I think you're characterizing it pretty accurately. Uh, and there is scholarly debate, of course, about all things Calvin, uh, about what he, he thought about this. Um, and so I'll, I'll just tell you what I think. Um, in my view, Calvin 
is actually theologically uh, less stringent regarding the Sabbath uh, than perhaps the Puritan traditions and other, the Westminster traditions uh, in England, for example. Uh, part of the reason that gets confusing is because if you look at uh, Calvin's sermons, uh, he does seem to be a little bit stricter, and certainly if you pay attention to discipline in Geneva, uh, they are going to discipline Sabbath very carefully. Uh, and so part of what I'm really interested in is if Calvin is a little less stringent theologically, but practically ends up wanting to discipline it very closely, there seems to maybe be a little disparity between the practice and the theology, and, and so why is that? Uh, that might be getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, so part of what Calvin thinks uh, is that there's clearly a ceremonial part of the commandment because we don't practice the Sabbath on the seventh day. Okay? And so he says, look, at the very least, that part of the commandment has to be ceremonial because otherwise all of us, by worshiping on the first day of the week, are breaking that part of the moral law. Okay? So that part's ceremonial. Uh, and he does think, though, that the, the command... The overall commandment is moral, but he wants to say, what's the actual purpose of the commandment? Okay. And for Calvin, uh, and the Dutch tradition picks this up, especially you can see this in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, it is about physical rest, but it's about more than that. And so Calvin, for example, will point to places like Hebrews 4 uh, and this idea of spiritual rest. And that's the phrase that he really keys in on. This commandment is really about, for Christians, spiritual rest. And that's where he wants to tie in worship. Right? Because if you read the Old Testament uh, commandment quite literally, there's very little in there about worship. Right? It's about rest. Uh, rest for you, your servants and animals and all the rest. Uh, but for Calvin, he says, look, in the Old Testament it was physical rest, but that's a type pointing to Christ who offers this eternal rest and this eternal rest is something we taste one time a week, or perhaps more, uh, in the Sabbath, where we practice this spiritual rest, right? And so the, the quote from the Heidelberg Catechism uh, is that, I rest from my evil ways, let the Lord work in me through his spirit, and so begin already in this life the eternal Sabbath. Right? I think that's very close to what Calvin thinks. Right? Uh, and when Ursinus uh, talks about his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, he makes very similar points. Right? Uh, so I, I think that the Dutch tradition follows Calvin to, to some extent, uh, and influenced by other Bootser, Bollinger, people like that. Um, and, and also has, at least in the 16th century, a relatively theologically um, open interpretation of the Sabbath commandment. That is to say, I don't think it's overly Sabbatarian. I think that shifts over time in the 17th century, and in the Dutch churches at least, there's quite a bit of then theological debate over uh, whether this is. But originally, I think that's uh, a pretty fair uh, assessment that they're not hmm. particularly Sabbatarian. So I've got a lot of questions <laughs> that I want to ask. So I'm going to start just with what you mentioned there at the tail end that seemed to be this potential change in the view of the Sabbath among the Dutch. Why might that change and what would that change really look like? Yeah, so I do think that theologically the Dutch churches are influenced by English Puritanism. Um, so, uh, yeah, lots of names we could throw out, but uh, so you have 
Perkins and then Ames, but then in the Dutch, uh, Taylink is going to be the uh, sort of father of this movement in the Dutch churches that often gets called the, the Further Reformation, the Nadere Reformatie. Uh, and so guys like Taylink, guys like uh, Vutius, uh, who end up uh, articulating a, a more Sabbatarian understanding of the commandment. Right? Uh, and so some of the theological shifts that happen there uh, is it's, it really centers around, I think, the shift from the seventh day to the first day of the week to observe the Sabbath is for them divinely instituted. Okay? Whereas for Calvin, Calvin will say things like, uh, look, the church has decided, the apostles decided that Sunday should be the day of rest, but they could have picked any other day. And we're free, actually, to pick whatever day best fits us. So we could have just as well picked Wednesday or Saturday or any other day of the week. And where the tradition, the English Puritans and, the, and their influence on the Dutch tradition, uh, where the disagreement will happen is uh, Sabbatarians will tend to say, no, it has to be the first day of the week because it was divinely instituted, right? No point, of course, to Christ's resurrection, that it's not an option that the church has to sort of pick the day. And so then they want to say, okay, so it has to be Sunday. Uh, now, what are our obligations for that day? And so clearly they'll say worship. They'll say a rest from work. And so they do tend to emphasize more than perhaps Calvin or, uh, or Sinus or people like that, uh, the continued importance of physical rest. Calvin has that too, but they tend to emphasize that more. Uh, and that physical rest for them is often... Uh, increasingly in the Dutch churches and in English Puritan, Puritanism, also includes things like recreation. Right? And it's not just a rest from work, but that it's a sort of cessation of anything physical, actually. Okay, so uh, another question, like as they conceive of this, is this a strictly sun up to sundown sort of thing? Is that is that supposed to be connecting to the Old Testament as well? Or is it a 24-hour period? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, they don't actually talk a ton about that. Uh, they're not so concerned, at least as what I've read. Maybe people can point me to things I've missed. But uh, as far as I have read it, they do tend to, I think, think of it as a 24-hour sort of cycle. Right? Um, they're not particularly interested in the Jewish roots of this uh, because for them, that's part of the shift that happens, right, from seventh day to first day. Uh, and so then there, the timing of it, right, that it has to be, you know, sun down to sun up um, is not so so crucial for them. So they don't spend a ton of energy there, but uh, I think they're conceiving it, of it as a 24-hour period. Again, yeah. either strictly on Sunday or perhaps some other day of the week. So what... Is there like an exegetical tradition, at least in the Dutch period, Dutch Reformed tradition or others, that would explain various texts? So one of them that always gets brought brought up to me, Romans fourteen five, where it says one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And it almost seems like the way you explain Calvin, he would say, well, you, you could pick a different day. It's just make the decision. Whereas others would say, no, it's got to be the first day of the week. Yeah, certainly. Uh, they do attend to those passages pretty explicitly. Romans 14, uh, Galatians 4, Colossians 2, you know, multi pick your, pick your one. Um, 
And so people like Calvin uh, will point to those passages, and of course, a lot of their uh, a lot of their exegetical work on those passages is contra the Catholic tradition and feast days and saints days and things like that. So that's where they spend most of their energy, sort of talking about that. Um, but there is within the Nadara Reformatie tradition, which is the part I know best, but I think this happens in the Puritan tradition too, uh, to, to take those passages. And what they'll say is, um, yeah, this means don't observe feast days and saints days and things like that. And in the Dutch tradition, they're, they're very hesitant to celebrate something like, um, well, Calvin doesn't necessarily want to celebrate Christmas and things like that. Uh, but they'll say things like, well, it, this isn't talking about the Sabbath. Right? Uh, the Sabbath is part of the moral commandment, so the seventh, the first day, uh, this one in seven pattern is a creational norm, and so these passages are talking about the human creations, right? The, the days that are human creations, not the the Sabbath day, right? So uh, there's some openness in the non-Sabbatarian traditions to to take those passages and say, look, this is why we could have any day of the week be our Sabbath. But in the more Sabbatarian traditions, they, they will take those passages and say, this isn't talking about the Sabbath at all. It's talking about human days, creations, uh, and the Sabbath's a divine ordinance, uh, creational norm. Uh, so this it just doesn't apply to these passages. Yeah. So they, they see okay. the tension that you see, uh, and they just sort of interpret it accordingly. So how much, I, I've been told this, uh, and I haven't done the research. So I'm just dependent on other other people. So you can totally debunk me here. Uh, I've understood or thought that part of the reason the English Puritans are more on the Sabbatarian direction, particularly with things like recreation, is because of things like the Book of Sports. Uh, and so, like, in my mind, I started making connections to, like, okay, if I'm thinking today, what's being prohibited is, like, travel baseball teams on Sunday. Not necessarily let me go pick up a Frisbee and throw it to my friends after church as we discuss the sermon or something. Is is that the right parallel to make, or am I totally off? Yes. So recreation, certainly in, especially in non-Sabbatarian traditions, is theologically permissible, right? As long as it doesn't interfere with worship, right? That's the one, right? If your travel baseball is main, meaning that you're not going to church, the, the Protestants would have had big problems with that, right? uh, pretty much across the board, actually, uh, generally speaking, at least. Uh, in terms of the Sabbatarians, right, so the English tradition, um, but even in the that sort of strand uh, within the Dutch churches, uh, they would, that prohibition would apply more strictly to things like sports, recreation, uh, because they think that it, A, God rests, right, uh, and that means from his work, but it's, they would say that that means rest from all physical activities. Um, and they think that it distracts, recreation distracts from the true purpose of the day, which is to focus on spiritual things. So not that there's anything wrong with throwing around, a, morally wrong with playing baseball or throwing a Frisbee or whatever, but on the Sabbath day for them, it's just not appropriate, right? Like it's, it's not the purpose of the day. Uh, so they would, I think, have problems even, at least some of the traditions there would have problems even with something 
uh, quite innocuous, right? That you say, look, I want to go do something in the afternoon between church services, you know. Uh, they might say, no, you should actually be focusing on uh, on your spiritual life and your spiritual edification. And those physical recreational things probably don't do that. Yeah, this is so this is fascinating. I, another question, I want to spend a little bit more time on sort of the, the theological rationale that these different streams are using to understand the the new covenant like purpose of the sabbath versus the old covenant like what is it that they're use is there a consistent sort of rationale that everybody's using to say look that part is ceremonial that part is moral uh so like you know when i asked 24 hours versus uh, sun up to sunrise to sundown my head immediately thinks like that should be a question that we should ask is that a ceremonial aspect or is that or is that a moral aspect so like what what's What's that key piece that everybody's using to, to determine what is and what isn't? Yeah, they are going to really, a lot of the foundational debate does come over what do we do with this seventh day thing? Uh, and so we've talked a little bit about that, um, but it's so important for them because if that is a, if that shift to the first day is divinely instituted, right, then the implications of that are, for them, are are important. Uh, because what it does for someone like Calvin or Sinus or things like that is not only does it allow you to shift the day, uh, but it also allows you to think about what else has shifted. Right? Uh, and so for them, they're willing to say that, look, this commandment's moral. And so the agreement is, look, the Ten Commandments are moral. Right? For all the other Ten Commandments are moral, so what what would make this Fourth Commandment so uh, unique? Right? Like, and certainly, so certainly, very few of the Protestants, if any, uh, none that I'm aware of, would say the Fourth Commandment is all ceremony and we can just get rid of it. Right? Like, that, no one wants to make that move. Uh, so then the question becomes, well, what's this commandment really about? Right? And for the stricter Sabbatarians, it's still about physical rest. Right? Uh, but for someone like Calvin or Sinus or Johannes Alasco and some of the other people I've looked into later on, uh, Coxeus uh, takes up this position. For them, the physical rest is also part of the sort of, they use the language of shadow of the old covenant. Uh, they will have discussions about how in the Old Testament, Israel used physical things to represent spiritual realities. And so they'll have discussions of sacrifices, right? physical sacrifices of animals and grain offerings and things like that. Those physical things, of course, in themselves serve no theological sort of purpose in themselves, but they point to the spiritual reality. And so for many of these Protestant uh, reformers, they feel they actually then interpret the physical rest in a similar way. This is not actually spiritually beneficial in itself. For Israel, it's pointing to the eternal rest that you'll experience, and now that, for us, has been opened up in Christ so that we can experience that on the Lord's Day, uh, even a sort of foretaste of it, right? Um, and so for them, it's rest from sinning, it's allowing God to work in you, and then the way you do that 
is through worship, right? And that's where worship enters in is so important for them because the way you experience the spiritual rest is through the preaching of the word and the sacraments, right? And so if you're not going to worship, you're not actually experiencing that spiritual rest. Right? Uh, the Sabbatarians share some of that. They, they clearly think worship is really important. Uh, they, they still will talk about spiritual rest, but they still want to hold to the moral responsibility of the physical rest as part of the commandment. Right? Uh, and that continues to be really important for them in ways that are a little, a little less, uh, I don't want to overstate the case, a little less important for someone like Calvin or Sinus or Lasco and so forth. Mm. Okay, so I, one of the most interesting aspects of your book, I think, was looking at the actual practices of these congregations. Uh, so maybe just give me a little bit of the lay of the land. What does it look like for a normal local congregation on a Sunday? And are, when are evening services required? I see quite frequently now there's a lament that almost universally, it seems, churches have abandoned Sunday evening services. So is this something that was a regularly required or expected practice at that point? So in the Dutch churches, it was. Uh, so the, not evening services, technically, they're afternoon services. Uh, but there's two worship services on a Sunday, uh, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Uh, and that second service, and this is drawing from the tradition in Geneva, uh, is a, a catechism service. So uh, it shares many of the same, the worship service search shares many of the same features as that morning service, but the sermon is quite explicitly on uh, the catechism. They'll even use the term like catechism preaching, right? They'll use that, that sort of term. Uh, of course, they're drawing in biblical texts and so forth, but it's, it's explicitly a sort of catechism service. Uh, that's drawing from Geneva, where originally there was just sort of, there was a number of services, but you're only expected to, to go to one. And then in the afternoon, they had catechism, which was originally just for kids. Uh, and then Calvin realized, like, none of the adults know what's going on here. So we're going to make everyone go. Uh, so they're drawing from that sort of morning worship service, afternoon catechism, preaching service. Uh, and the expectation was you were supposed to attend both of those. Uh, I, too, hear lots of people lamenting uh, the lack of sort of second services in contemporary American churches. Uh even in my own uh, denomination, that's even within my lifetime, you know, gone away very quickly in sort of, uh, you know, a whole bunch of places. Yeah. Uh, and sort of one of the things I point out to people uh, is that even in the 1500s, 1600s, uh, the Dutch Christians, so many of them did not want to go to that second service. Um, maybe my favorite story is that uh, there's a church uh, gathering of the church authorities and this pastor of a local congregation says, look, no one comes to the afternoon services. Can It's not worth my effort. Can we just cancel it? Like, I, And the uh, uh, synod tells him, no, you need to keep holding that afternoon service, even if it's only you and your family there. Right? Like, Even if it's only your family, you're going to hold that service. Right? Uh, so it's a frequent complaint that people are skipping the second service. Uh, they're not showing up. Yeah, it's nothing new, nothing new. Yeah, no, that, that's helpful context. And I, I mean, I, I, I want to, before I bring it to the, to sort of like contemporary application to someone, you mentioned early on, like about various different days having other services. I think in American context, 
pretty frequent to have like a Wednesday evening service. Are there other like general services that these Dutch churches are holding and are they well attended? How do they connect to the Lord's day? Yeah. For the most part in the Dutch uh, situation, they're just holding them on Sunday. Actually, uh, Geneva is slightly different. Uh, they have some midweek services. Um, but mo- for, in the Dutch churches, it's pretty much on Sunday. Um, uh, mostly because that's when people have off work, right? Um, And if people have to travel any distance, uh, Sunday is just the sort of practical day. So it's pretty rare to have midweek services. They'll do some things around um, marriages. uh, And if they incorporate that into a worship service, uh, they'll try and uh, that will sometimes happen during the middle of the week. Uh, Things like they will hold prayer days, actually, uh, in times, especially in sort of uh, tumultuous times uh, and those will often happen on in the middle of the week Uh, but those are the exception rather than the rule so it's traditionally uh, Sundays yeah as really for most of them it's a matter it's again not necessarily a theological principle but a sort of practical principle interesting so when we come to today if we were Dutch theological rationale for the Sabbath we have that in place our and we live here in the 21st century, are we allowed to go home after church, pick up food at a fast food restaurant on the way home? Are we allowed to watch the NFL Sunday afternoon? What are the principles at play? Would they just outlaw and say, no, 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 you can't do any of that. You have to prepare your food Saturday afternoon and you have to eat it. Um, You can't make anything. Yeah, so this is, where the theology doesn't always match up with the practice very well, because one of the things that the church authorities continually complain about is this Sabbath. Uh, They use the word desecration or like uh, profanation, right? To profane. Uh, And if you believe, if the records are to be trusted uh, and not seen to be exaggerating, it's evidently a big problem. Uh, And so they do complain about things like, so the the tradition in the sort of late medieval period was, Uh, Sunday was the market day. Uh, So you'd go to church and then as you leave church, you'd have in the town square, the market where you'd buy and sell your goods, your food for the week. Uh, Especially this was helpful for rural people because they were already in town. So save them a trip to town. Uh, And the Protestants hate that. They hate the, the church authorities hate the practice of market days. They hate the buying and selling of goods uh, they complain about it a lot. They try and get rid of it um, unsuccessfully. In fact, there's one provincial synod that says, look, uh, we're trying to get rid of these market days, but it's we're failing. Let's just let it go and let them have the market days and just sort of they throw their hands up and, and say, we can't fight this. Uh, so they... They would not. They would not like shopping on Sunday. That's the sort of. They don't like that. Uh, they want to get rid of it. In terms of like preparing food and things like that, uh, they do use the theological category of quote necessary work on the Sabbath. Uh, and the obvious example of that is of course preachers, right? Like they're obviously working on Sunday, and so you have to come up with some way to say that that's okay. Uh, and in doing so, they'll frequently use this category of necessary work. And so then that opens the door for some other things. Uh, it includes things some, oftentimes like food prep. Right? So uh, there's just certain 
things you have to do to cook food. So in the early modern period, but you have to keep the fire going, right? Like there's just things that have to be done uh, to survive. Uh, that's necessary work. It includes things like um, taking care of children, actually. Right? So uh, one of the excuses they'll actually sort of provide legitimacy to uh, to miss church is my kid was sick, had to stay home and take care of him or her. Right? Uh, so those sorts of things. But that also then opens up a bunch of gray area around work. Uh, for example, uh, one of the major issues in rural areas is uh, come harvest time or planting time, uh, can I do that on Sunday if time is, right? They can, they can see, look, it's going to storm tomorrow. Uh, I need to get my crop in, uh, so I need to work on Sunday because the storm's coming Monday. Is that necessary work or is it not? And there's, again, uh, there's disagreement about that. Obviously, the farmers would like it to be necessary work. Uh, a lot of times the church authorities don't. Right? Yeah. Uh, so I, to sort of answer your question around work, um, yeah, what's necessary work? That's the sort of theological question that they ask. Um, I could leave it up to you and your listeners, I guess, to, to make those decisions. But things like if I go to eat at a restaurant on Sunday, uh, obviously someone's got to prepare that food and serve it and so forth. Uh is that necessary work? Right? And here's again a sort of difference between Sabbatarians and non-Sabbatarians. If you're non-Sabbatarian, you might say, well, that worker has the option of having another day as their Sabbath. So as long as they're having another day off, and maybe that, as long as they have some access to some sort of worship, uh, then perhaps they're okay. Right? Uh, whereas if you're a Sabbatarian, that's not an option, right? Because it has to be Sunday. And so then that person that's working on the Sabbath is in fact violating the commandment. And if you have a part in that, uh, you're, you're probably responsible for that, right? Uh, so it's another sort of practical outworking of some of those theological principles. Um, and they do, yeah, they think a little bit differently uh, about that. Would those theological principles sh shift the thinking a little bit if they thought the people who are, say, for example, preparing this food are non-Christians. So this restaurant is established by all non-Christians, so they don't follow the principle of the Sabbath in any way. Would that potentially shift how they thought about it in any way? In the Dutch situation, that's definitely the reality, right? Because it's a religiously plural situation. The vast majority of people are not members of the Reformed Church or even attenders, actually. Uh, People, Catholics, Anabaptists, Lutherans, Jews, Muslims, there's all sorts of people in the early modern low countries. Uh, for the Reformed authorities, it doesn't. Uh, because this is still a moral commandment. Right? Uh, and so it's something that is not just for Christians, but it in fact should be for the broader society. And here they use this concept of order is really important for them. Uh, so they another phrase they use frequently is the disordered Sabbath. The idea that people who aren't keeping the Sabbath are contributing to this disorder. And that bothers them significantly within the church. We have to have this ordered church uh, and people need to observe that. Uh, they draw from that 1 Corinthians 14, I think it is, verse 40, uh, passage is really important to them. But that also applies to society more broadly. 
and they think that if people are breaking the Sabbath, it's going to create a disordered society. Actually, in kind of the same way it would if you didn't enforce the murder commandment, right? Like, maybe not to the same degree, but if you just have people going around murdering each other, it's not a fruitful way to live. Uh, and they actually think similarly about the Sabbath. If you don't give people a Sabbath, uh, even if they're not Christians, it's not a very fruitful way to live. And this is actually a really interesting point, I think, for... Uh, people who are interested in contemporary psychology, interested in physical wellness, interested even in like business. Uh, what does it mean to give your employees a day off? Right? Mm -hmm. Or what's the what does the human body need in terms of rest? What does the what's it do for our psychology? Uh, is Sabbath something that contributes to human wellness, even if you're not a Christian? Right? Um, and I think increasingly people are attending to that, actually, that this sort of frenetic pace uh, of Western culture is not actually fruitful. Um, so, yeah, in the Dutch situation in the early modern period, the church, the churches are continually complaining to the secular authorities uh, to enforce the Sabbath. Uh, the secular authorities don't always want to do that because for all sorts of reasons, uh, but they're constantly telling them, they're complaining to the sheriffs, you need to enforce this law, you need to... Uh, police this better right? so it's a continual point of conflict man this is fascinating so i've got to know like are there other resources out there that are dealing with similar questions of this that if people want to read more and understand more of the context maybe it's just primary literature you'd say you need to go read these um what does that look like yeah so if you're interested in the primary sources i think the probably most easily accessible are in fact the catechisms uh, and you can see some of the clear differences there, right? So if you read the Heidelberg Catechism and then go and read the Westminster Longer Catechism, right? Like you're going to see very clearly a different sort of understanding of the Sabbath there. Uh, and those are pretty accessible. You could look up the Genevan Catechism as well to, to see some of Calvin's thoughts more explicitly. Uh, those are, I think, probably the easiest places to, to start because they're meant just the genre is, is relatively accessible. Um, so that's why I'd recommend that. Um, in terms of more contemporary discussions, uh, there's Casey Carmichael has written a good book. Um, oh, I forget the title of it right now, but uh, it's on the Sabbath. It's more theologically oriented uh, exclusively uh, in some of the disagreements within the Dutch Reformed tradition. Uh, it's also published by Vandenhoek and Ruprecht, the same series that my book is in. Uh, so his is one I'd recommend. He thinks about it a little differently than I do, but uh, not substantially so, I, I don't think. Uh, there's plenty of people talking about Sabbath uh, in terms of like uh, contemporary theology and practice. Uh, I'm excited. Travis West is a professor at Western Seminary. Uh, he has a book coming out. I'm not sure when it, it will be published, but uh, on Sabbath, uh, so he's doing some work on that. Uh, other work like Marva Dawn has a book on Sabbath. That one's getting a little bit older now. It's probably at least probably 20 years, I guess now, maybe more. Um, so there are, there are works out there. Uh, I think people are still interested in this, uh, especially around sort of what's, what's, permissible, but perhaps maybe even that sometimes as a sort of negative cut, like what can I get away with? Uh, but I think increasingly the conversation is around what's 
fruitful here, right? Like yeah. how, how can this be life-giving? Uh, and and I, I think that's a promising way forward, actually. Yeah, no, that's helpful. I, so as I've listened and thought about this right now, I, I'm thinking of most traditions that are downstream from English Puritanism, let's say the PCA, for example, who uphold Westminster Confession, it would seem to me, looking at the practice of most people, that almost all of them universally would not be able to affirm what actually is in Westminster. Am I thinking about that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, which, again, raises this question that I'm really interested in. Like, how do people yeah. reconcile that, right? Like, how yeah. do you reconcile that? Um, which is, again, in the early modern period, like, why do they police it so carefully uh, when their theology doesn't support that, right? It's sort of the inverse of the question you're asking, right? But yeah. like the Dutch authorities are very much against recreation. on, So they, they discipline that really carefully, even though their theology at first doesn't really support it, right? So they get mad at people who are um, sailing or who are uh, practicing like clay pigeon shooting, right? Like those sorts of things. There's this it took me the longest time to figure out this game the Dutch would play called goose pulling, where they take a goose, <laughs> they tie its feet up, uh, like from a rope kind of high up, and then they'd have people riding horses past it. And of course, the goose is flopping around and it, whoever could grab the goose as they rode by on the horse. Right? Like, and the Dutch just hate that sort of recreation. Right. And they, they are constantly disciplining and trying to get people to stop doing that, even though the theology of a lot of the tradition doesn't really call for that. Why is that? And so I have some ideas in the book about why they might be concerned about that and confessional competition and an order and things like that. But to the contemporary application, like how is it that a lot of Christians have theology that say we need to observe the Sabbath pretty strictly, but then in our churches, we just sort of let people go and do whatever they want, right? Like that would never fly with, a, at least in my view, for a lot of other commandments, Right? Like, just think about the adultery commandment, right? Like, uh, if you said, okay, yeah, here's what we believe about sexual immorality, uh, but now we'll just sort of turn a blind eye and people can sort of do what they want. Like, that would never work. Mm -hmm. Yet it does seem to, to a certain extent, come into the Sabbath commandment a little bit. It's a fascinating, yeah, sort of disparity. <laughs> This is absolutely fascinating. So maybe we need to do another episode in the future about more Gladly. about this. This is this is awesome. So, Kyle, is there a play? Do you have a website or anything for people who want to keep up with the stuff that you're doing, reach out, contact, or anything like that? Is there a location they can go? Yeah, the easiest way to get a hold of me uh, is just to email me, actually. Uh, and of course, since I'm transitioning positions, uh, that emails a little bit. Um, but if you just Google me, uh, Google my name, you'll find the email. Uh, the one at Dort will be, for your listeners, I think the one that will be functioning most clearly. Or it's just my G it's a Gmail address with my name yeah. uh, at gmail.com. So I'm glad to answer emails. Um, yeah, awesome. that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. I love talking with people. Uh, I had a guy uh, in Australia who was really interested in this because he, was a, uh, he worked as a miner. Uh, and his, the mining company was going to ask him, force him to work on Sundays. Uh, and his local congregation, he was in a reformed congregation with a very Sabbatarian bent, uh, was going to discipline him for this. Uh, and so his question was like, what do I do? Right? Like, uh, am I okay working on the Sabbath because my, my job requires it? 
once a month or not. So it's a really practical issue. And if I can help people think through that, I, I don't have easy answers for people, uh, but if I can help them think through, give them some theological resources, uh, I'm really glad to do that. So. Well, this is, this is awesome. So I, I've really, really enjoyed this. So everybody's been listening. You need to go check out Kyle's work. This is, I think, extremely helpful. So thanks, Kyle, for talking with us. This was a lot of fun. And everybody's been listening. As you know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.